Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about some of the shortest reigns that history has ever seen. I'll tell you what, they are bloody short. With all the ones we're going to talk about today, they all come in at under a day, under a day on the throne, all of these monarchs spent. Um, this excellent topic was suggested by alert listener Nakum Hackett, so cheers very much for that. It was very, very entertaining indeed to read about some of these, uh, you know, these short reigns here. Now, obviously, you know, something weird has to happen for you to hold on to a monarchy for less than a day, and there's all sorts of stuff to get across in this episode, obviously. I mean, look, abdication's just the start of it. We've got assassinations, there's untimely deaths, there's brave last stands, we've got, you know, coup d'etats, we've got, uh, well, obviously, I mean, goes without saying, we've got a fair bloody bit of horrible murder. But before we get into it, I want to uh, I want to point out that this is this is a little bit of a distance. This episode it's a bit of a distance from the usual sort of rock solid black and white approach we take to historical exactness on this podcast. I know, I know half our history is sort of billed as you know it's been a bit of a giggle, a bit a bit, bit of a laugh, and doesn't take itself too seriously. But I gen, gen, generally ensure that everything that I talk about in the podcast is is well sourced and generally agreed upon by historians and. When it's not, I'll usually let you know. You know, in previous episodes, you'll hear me say, well, you know, we're not exactly sure about this, but, and then I'll go on and say whatever it is that we're not sure about. But there's a sort of blanket we're not exactly sure about a lot of this on this entire episode here. And there's, there's a good reason for that. This episode's a lot more loosey-goosey than usual, um, especially given that, you know, some of these rules, quite a lot of them, weren't ever really actually rulers in anything other than a technical sense. And even then, the technical sense isn't always universally accepted. And on top of that, there are other rulers who didn't make the shortlist, but perhaps could have, um, again, because their status as a ruler is accepted by some and disputed by others. And look, bottom line is this week's episode, a lot less rigid than others, a little less hard and fast. And it's more of a survey of some of the rulers throughout history that had the shortest reigns rather than, you know, sort of a definitive list. But again, I do mean like really bloody short. Everyone I'm going to talk about today enjoyed a reign. Well, I, sp- I, I guess it, it, it's probably not accurate to say that they enjoyed it. That might be a bit much considering some of the circumstances, some of these rulers. So everyone I'm going to talk about today had a rule. You know, I don't know if they enjoyed it. Had a rule of under a day, as I say, just a few hours in some cases, and one bloke for only a couple of minutes. So uh, a lot to get across. Uh, a lot to get across. Let's get to it here to have a chat about some of the shortest reigns in history. Off we go. We're going to start here. We're going to go all the way back, all the way back to start our stories off to uh, the 12th century, specifically to the year 1167. Uh, and this is when a bloke named Min Shin Saw became the king of Burma, sometimes obviously Burma known today as Myanmar. But he didn't last long, as you'd expect, didn't last long. He died within hours of his consecration when he was murdered by his own brother. Uh, this is a tale of familial, uh, familial intrigue, exile, and of course, ultimate, ultimately horrible murder, of course. How listen to this one. Right, so Min Shin Saw, right, his dad, the king of Burma before him, he was a bloke named Sithu, Sithu I. Now, Sithu seemed to be a pretty good bloke, pretty uh, pretty decent king. Uh, after taking the throne in 1112, he worked on restoring peace and order to his kingdom, and then he just poured resources on him into improving it. He built everything from military installations like forts and border outposts, civil works like dams and irrigation systems, as well as cultural buildings like monuments, temples. Very popular bloke, very, you know, just genuine... Gen- 
generally seemed to just be a very good king and a, and a decent ruler as well. And he traveled all around his kingdom while he was king. He was held in high regard by his people, it seemed. So good on you, Sithu, mate, really showing us how it's done there as king of Burma. But he doesn't seem to have done too well, however, when it comes to his sons. Because his eldest son and his heir, obviously, Minshin saw disrespectful, proud, bloody mistreating people, going around, causing trouble in the royal court, having a, having a, just, just making a huge ass of himself a lot of the time. And Sithu, the king, in response, actually locked him up. He locked him up in 1151, um, but then ultimately sent him into exile instead. So, you know, he could go and rather than sending him to his room room to have a think about what he'd done, he sent him to a bloody, you know, village 150 kilometres away and told him to sit there and have a think about his done, what he's done. But funnily enough, this worked. Min went off and he settled in a town um, and governed it very effectively. He built canals and improved the agricultural output of the region enormously, which brought a lot of, a lot of wealth. He was doing a very good job as a sort of, you know, as a regional, as a governor, more or less. Um, and he made a bit of a name for himself. You know, as this prince in exile, uh, made his little domain very, very famous and, and prosperous and wealthy as he continued to build it up. But unfortunately, all was uh, was not too well back on the home front, back in the kingdom of Burma, because Min's younger brother Narathu, right, who has been named Sithu's heir now after uh, after the departure of Min. Uh, just couldn't wait to be king, couldn't bloody wait to be crowned king, so much so, get this, right, that when poor old Sithu fell ill in 1167 at the age of 77, Narathu just moved his sick dad out of the palace and into a temple, hoping he'd just keel over and die after not being taken care of properly. Now, Sithu, at the age of 77, you know, obviously a tough bloke, he pulled through, he didn't die of this illness, but when he woke up and realised that he was, you know, in this temple rather than being in his palace, he demanded to know why he'd been taken out out of the palace, put in this temple. Narathu found out that his dad was uh, had regained consciousness, headed into the temple, and he's that bloody pissed about his dad surviving, that he went up to his dad's bed, right, old, went to his old man's bedside, and used the bedding to suffocate him. I mean, mate, where's your bloody patience? Narathu, mate, what are you doing? You'll end up being king. Your dad's 77. It's the 12th century. Like, he's not got, he's not got bloody long left in him. Just wait a little bit. Bloody hell. Anyway, that's what happened. Narathu, he offed his old dad. He, you know, he wanted the crown that much that he killed his old man for it. But check this out. When Minshin Saw heard about the death of Sithu, he hurried back, right, to the royal court with all speed. He's ready to come and claim the throne because, of course, he used to be the heir. Now, Narathu had been made Sithu's heir. I don't know if this was official or a sort of de facto arrangement, whatever it was, but Sithu was expected to inherit. So I don't really know why Min thought that he was going to be able to sort of just, just waltz in and take the throne, but obviously that's what he tried. I mean, then again, he was the eldest brother, you know, controller port one. There are rules about this sort of thing, you know, so I guess it's fair enough. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this. He gets back and Narathu is there, but he open arms, welcomes him back and says, oh, mate, don't even worry about it. Dad named me, yeah, but you know, you go nuts. I've been keeping the throne warm for you. The crown is all yours. Don't even worry. Narathu seemed to cede the, the, the throne to his exiled older brother without, without any hesitation. He proclaimed him king personally. His accession to the throne is then further supported by a consecration ceremony that very day with Narathu, Narathu leading the ceremonial uh, procession down the street. So brilliant job done, you'd think. The crown passes from father to son, no worries at all. Let's get some food to celebrate our new king. And you'll never guess what happened next. Narathu organised for Min Shin Saw to be poisoned at this, uh, at this dinner. And so just hours after being proclaimed and consecrated as king of Burma, Min Shin Saw was dead. He'd had the, the, the crown, you know, plonked on his bloody head earlier that day. And uh, before the day was out, 
he was lying face down in his dinner. You know, well, I don't know if that was actually true. Again, that may not have happened, but a little bit of poetic license. You can imagine him just bloody spewing up his dinner everywhere after he got the poison, the, the, the pants poisoned off him. So his reign then, if you want to call it that, lasted less than a day. He's so, it was such, such, such a short reign that he's not included on most lists of Burmese monarchs, the poor bastard. And after this, Narathu was duly crowned king, as you'd expect, uh, you know, the problem was he'd just murdered his brother and father and this didn't make him too didn't make him very popular amongst the people that he was ruling over um he was really very very unpopular and and, and a very you know he brought an enormous amount of dishonor and shame on not only the royal family but the kingdom more more broadly so he wasn't very well liked but it turns out he wasn't finished murdering people either because he ended up killing one of his wives uh, a little bit later on and this proved to be a bad move as she was the daughter of another king. Uh, and this king promptly hired a group of eight assassins to kill Narathu. So he lasted a total of four years as king before he was assassinated, which, you know, broadly speaking, isn't all that long in the grand scheme of things. But it's nothing, of course, compared to the record that he helped Minshin Saw set, the forgotten king of Burma, ruling just long enough to get one meal into him before dying at his perfidious younger brother's hands. Now, you will have heard of Nicholas II, Emperor of all Russia, the Tsar, of course, but you probably haven't heard of his little brother, Michael. Now, Michael is generally not considered to have ever properly become the Emperor of all Russia, despite his brother abdicating the throne in favour of him. This is one of those stories where the word technically starts to get thrown around a lot, um, often in support of two diametrically opposed arguments. And I have to say, I'm not here to argue that Michael ever was really the Emperor of all Russia. I think it's ultimately right that his name isn't on lists of the Tsars that Russia had throughout its history. But still, Michael's story is a very interesting one indeed. And if you want to count his reign as being legitimate, which it wasn't, for, for many reasons, as you'll see, then we can count him as having enjoyed 16 total hours as the Tsar, and he spent most of them asleep. Nicholas, uh, Nicholas II became Tsar in 1894. He had two brothers in the line of succession after him, George and Michael, or, sorry, Michael, to give him his proper title, the Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich of Russia. Now, George died in 1899, leaving Grand Duke Michael as the heir to the throne, right, through till 1904. And in 1904, this was in uh, when Nicholas II had a son, Alexei. Now, you remember Alexei from episode uh, 126 when we talk about Rasputin. Alexei, very sickly child, Michael knew that there was a good chance that uh, he would end up the heir again, if, uh, if Alexei obviously, you know, just died, then uh, Michael would be next in line to the throne. Uh, and it didn't seem that Michael was too keen on the idea of becoming the Tsar. Uh, sometime after Alexei was born, he started rooting, right, this married commoner, this woman who was so far below his station as, you know, as, as a grand duke, as, as, the, as the brother of the emperor. And uh, this caused quite a scandal. This caused quite a scandal, him running off with this uh, this commoner, who was, again, married. Her name was Natalia Wolfert. And uh, uh, Nicholas was so unhappy with his younger brother, uh, you know, shacking up with this uh, with this commoner that he ended up sending his brother away. He tried to split the, this, the, the, the couple up. He, he tried to put a lid on the whole thing. But Michael, having none of it, he kept seeing this bird. He ended up having a kid with her. And then in 1912, he bloody married her once her divorce went through with her with her former husband. And uh, it seems that Michael, part I mean, obviously he's in love with this woman, but it seems that part of the reason that he went through with this is that he was very worried that Alexei actually might die, right, his young nephew, 
which as I said would make him the heir again and make a marriage with a commoner absolutely impossible, right? So this was something that he was doing uh, in order to sort of stave off a lot of the responsibilities and, and, and duties that he'd have as a member of the of the ruling royal family or imperial family, sorry, in Russia, uh, something that would be impossible to him if he ever became the Tsar, if indeed he was in the next next in line to the throne. So he hurried through with this uh, with this marriage with this bird, and obviously, as I say, didn't seem that too uh, didn't seem too keen on the imperial title himself. Anyway, the marriage didn't go over well. Nicholas is bloody spitting chips when he found out what his little brother has done, and in 1913 he ended up exiling him. This is a very exile-heavy episode so far, I'm realising. Uh, anyway, he exiled him from Russia altogether. Michael ended up living in the UK for a bit, but this exile actually didn't last long as it turns out, because of course uh, the Great War broke out, and after it did, Michael returned to Russia with his, uh, his brother's uh, blessing in order to fight in it. Now, we all know, of course, the war didn't go super well for Russia, although Michael himself served with distinction, bagged a bunch of metal, uh, metals, metals, sorry. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if he was harvesting resources on the way, but he definitely got a lot of metals. Um, and he seemed to also have the respect of many of the other soldiers and officers that he worked with. But one person whose respect continued to evade him was that of his older brother, Nicholas II, already well and truly off the rails. He'd been in Rasputin's pocket for years, of course, and even after the, the death of Rasputin, uh, Nicholas is just still mildly bonkers and off his tree and uh, as we head into 1917 now uh, people are actually coming to Michael himself and saying listen you need to go and have a talk to your brother you need to get him back on the straight and narrow but Michael's saying to them listen he doesn't listen to a word I say he doesn't have any time for me whatsoever he's got he doesn't have any respect for me whatsoever so there's nothing I can do about this right there's no I have no influence over the emperor anymore even though I'm you know even though his bloody younger brother he just doesn't have the time of day for me and given the fact that Nicholas was was you know driving the uh, the Russian Empire into ruin, or he at least perceived to be doing this, in early 1917, the February Revolution broke out. Uh, revolutionaries they forced Nicholas to abdicate. They established a provisional government, and they started rounding up those associated with the imperial family, which of course included Michael. Now here's the interesting thing: Nicholas initially. When he abdicated, he abdicated, obviously, of course, in, as you'd expect, he abdicated in favour of his, of, of his son, Alexei. Alexei was his heir, after all, so it makes a lot of sense that the, the throne would pass from father to son. However, after he did this, he realised that he might, he might have sort of got himself in a, in, a, in a fair bit of trouble, right? Because after signing this declaration, he signed on the, on, at 3pm on the 15th of March, uh, 1917. He abdicated the throne, naming Alexei as his successor. But after doing this, he realised, bloody hell, I might have actually painted myself into a corner here because... Alexei's poor health, right, meant that Nicholas was very afraid of being separated from his son. He was very afraid that he would lose Alexei and, you know, have him become a puppet ruler and have people not look after him, whatever else, because of his, you know, he's frail and, and ill and whatever else. So later that day, later that night, on the 15th of March in 1917, at 11.40pm, Nicholas wrote a second abdication document. And instead, in this one, he abdicated in favour of his brother. Right? And he did this hoping, again, that he wouldn't be separated from Alexa, his son. So, Michael wakes up in the morning on the 16th of March 1917. He wakes up to a bit of a bloody shock, I can tell you, because he finds out that while he'd been asleep, his brother had tried to make him emperor of all Russia. Now, his accession actually was proclaimed throughout the country. Many people heard of the, the, the news of the, of the new Tsar, you know, Michael II. Um, and, uh, you know, many loyalists were, were celebrating this and going, yeah, bloody hell, this bloke's going to be a lot better than the other, you know, the bloody Nicholas II who he didn't have his head screwed on too well. So fantastic. You know, there's lots of people who are getting, getting behind, they're welcoming him to the throne. But unfortunately, the, there were some people who also didn't welcome the succession or accession and uh, they were ultimately the ones who mattered, the ones who were in charge of the provisional government in the wake of the revolution. So interestingly, 
they disputed this accession on more than one point, right? They weren't just saying, well, you know, bloody down with the Tsarist, whatever else. By lunchtime, Michael was actually in meetings with people with the new government, uh, people from the new government and their lawyers who were laying out a very complex legal argument as to the illegitimacy of this whole succession process. There is all these all this legal minutiae that they're working through here. They're asking stuff like, you know, could Nicholas just take his son out of the equation? Could he abdicate in favour of his brother? Alexei was the heir after all. And did Nicholas even have the power or authority to overrule that uh, that process? Was Michael even the emperor in, at all in the first place? How much legit- legitimacy did anyone have at this point, given, you know, there's a, there's a revolution going on? And here's what's amazing about the entire situation. Here's what really sort of caps this entire thing off, right? Faced with the direct offer of the of, of the, the Tsardom of Russia, the Empire of Russia is is being offered to Michael essentially, right? He chose to do nothing. He chose to neither accept nor reject the monarchy. He instead said that it was up to the new provisional government to decide. He acknowledged the revolutionaries as the de facto rulers of Russia. And he, and he deferred to them as whether he should ultimately take the throne. Here is what he wrote. Here is how he outlined his position. <clears throat> I have taken the firm decision to assume the supreme power if and when our great people invest me with such power. I request all the citizens of the Russian Empire to submit to the provisional government until such time as the Constituent Assembly elected within the shortest possible time by universal, direct, equal and secret suffrage shall manifest the will of the people by deciding upon the new form of government. Rather than leap at the chance to seize power for himself, Michael deferred to the will of the people in the wake of this popular revolution, which was quite a noble thing to do, really, and also, you know, very sensible given the rather heated political climate at the time, but how forward-thinking and how very progressive, how very you know, open-minded of this younger brother of an empire, emperor who is having this empire almost not quite handed to him, but at least he's got a good shot at grabbing it. And he just turned away and said, no, it is for the people to decide. I will not usurp the mantle of power here. So if you count Nicholas's abdication as legitimate as legal, and certainly many people don't, and if you count Michael as becoming Tsar in its wake, and again, many people don't, and if you accept his statement the next day as representing the end of his leadership, of his rule, then Emperor Nicholas II of all Russia ruled for about 16 hours. But of course, that's not really how history remembers it, and quite rightly, I think, as instead the Tsarist regime is seen to have ended with the abdication of Nicholas II, because that was very much the de facto transfer of power from the Tsarist regime to the provisional government. And then obviously, you know, in the months to come, the October Revolution would change everything yet again, and, and we have the, the, you know, the, the, the USSR growing out of that. But unfortunately for Michael, as the political turmoil continued in post-imperial Russia, he was confined to house arrest. And then ultimately, he was imprisoned and transported east in 1918 after the October Revolution uh, on the orders of the Council of People's Commissars, whose chairman, of course, was Vladimir Lenin. And sadly, while he was imprisoned in a town called Perm out near the Ural Mountains, Michael was murdered by former prisoners of the Tsarist regime. He was murdered on the 12th of June, 1918. And it is a great shame, really, because as far as 20th century Russian imperials go, Michael seemed to be a decent sort. After the October Revolution, when when Russia was declared to be a republic, he wrote this in his diary. He wrote, We woke up this morning 
to here, Russia declared a republic. What does it matter which form the government will be, as long as there is order and justice? And sadly, those who turn down the offer of power are often those most suited to wield it. But Russia never found out if its lost emperor Michael II was the right man for the job. Outside of those 16 hours that don't really count, Michael was within a heartbeat of the Russian throne. But unfortunately for him, he went down with the ship as the Russian Revolution ended Tsarism in Russia for good. We're going all the way back to the 13th century for our next story here, all the way back to 13th century China to hear the tale of Wanyan Qingling, who also became known very, very late in his career as Emperor Mo of Jin. Uh, We're going all the way back to the year 1234, very pleasingly, the year 1234, when Emperor Aizong was uh, in charge of the Jin dynasty, desperately defending it from, can anyone guess, of course, the Mongols, yes. Uh, at this point in history, Genghis Khan has been dead for seven years, but his sons are still roaring around, conquering anything that moves. And the age of Mongol conquests and expansion and invasion, it is far from over, I can tell you that. Now, the Jin dynasty, uh, or the Jurchen Jin, as it's sometimes known, they ruled over the northeastern corner of China um, and up into modern-day Russia, all the way along the western edge of the Yellow Sea and the Sea of Japan, past the uh, past the Korean Peninsula and up into the Sea of, uh, of Okhotsk. But from 1211 onwards, the Jin had been waging a war of defence against a Mongol invasion, and from 1224 onwards, it had been Emperor Aizong at the helm. Now, Aizong, he was a decent enough emperor. He put up stiff resistance against the Mongols and their allies. He was aided uh, by a, a fiercely loyal retinue of, uh, of, of, of staff, officers, and generals. And one of these generals is the hero of our story, Wanyan Chengling. So he started uh, he, as a, you know, as a, as a, as a nobleman in the uh, in the Jin house. He became uh, a very well respected uh, general who had earned the trust of the emperor, uh, Emperor Aizong himself. Um, he'd been a general all his life and uh, was quite admired by Aizong for his conduct as a soldier and as a leader. But of course, we all know how the story of the Mongol ends. They were irresistibly powerful, and in 1232, despite the best efforts of Aizong, despite the best efforts of, uh, of Wanyan Chengling, the Mongols succeeded in uh, in capturing the Jin capital of Bianjing, uh, again, despite the, the military efforts of, of leaders such as, such as Wanyan. And uh, so Aizong, he fled the capital, and he escaped to another city, Kaizhou. Uh, and of course, he brought his retinue in tow. Wanyan Chengling was with him as the emperor fled. Well, actually, many of the others, I, you know, I, I, I characterize them as being fiercely loyal. Turns out a lot of them actually weren't all that loyal because a lot of other companions sort of just completely abandoned him and went their own way instead as he was fleeing to Kaizhou. So, you know, Kaizhou uh, rats off the sinking ship there. Anyway, once they arrived in Kaizhou, in, in Kaizhou uh, Aizong, Wanyan, and everyone else there, they did their best to set up shop and re-establish the Jin government there after the defeat in Bianjing. But unfortunately for them, um, it wasn't long before the Mongols were once again snapping at their heels, and in 1234, Kaizhou had been besieged by the Mongols, who were absolutely intent upon capturing it as well. Upon the orders of the mighty Ogadai Khan, the son of Genghis Khan, the Mongols attacked the city, and Aizong knew that all was lost. He knew that they had no chance of holding out against this Mongol invading force. But here's where the story gets really good. Check this out, right? Aizong didn't want to go down in history as the last of the Jin emperors. He didn't want to be the last entry on the bloody Wikipedia Sovereigns of the Jin Dynasty list. And I'll tell you this. He got his dying wish. 
As the Mongols attacked the city, Aizong, he summoned his loyal general to him. He summoned Wanyan Chengling to his side. When it, uh, Wanyan was, was called to attend upon the emperor and to hear his words. And Aizong said to him, if you'll believe it, he said that he wanted to make him emperor. Aizong told Wanyan that he believed himself too fat to escape the city on horseback, whereas Wanyan, young, fit, ready, ready to, uh, to escape the danger, he had a chance to make it out of the siege alive and continue the Jin dynasty in the hopes that it would one day rise again. He told Wanyan that he would pass the throne to him so he could make a comeback in the future and ensure that the Jin dynasty didn't perish at the hands of the Mongols. I mean, you can imagine how Wanyan must have felt. All his life he's been a general, loyally following his emperor, you know, through hell and high water, and now he's been summoned to it and says, listen, mate, time for you to pop the bloody hat on. It's, uh, <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the hot seat now, my friend. Uh, you know, emperor out of nowhere, he's got to get himself out of this sticky situation. He, can, he needs to somehow resist the tide of the Mongols, restore the Jin dynasty, no worries. Quite the side quest there that his emperor has just given, uh, given him. Anyway... So it was, of course, the, uh, the Emperor's command couldn't be, uh, couldn't be turned down, and that meant that on the 9th of February in 1234, Emperor Aizong officially abdicated the throne to Wanyan Chengling, and it was only very shortly after that, after this ceremony, that news arrived of the Mongols breaching the city walls. So the plan for Wanyan to escape and regroup with the, uh, you know, with the tattered remnants of the Jin dynasty was, was shot to pieces. Because when news of the Mongol attack arrived, everyone jumped to their feet and, and leapt into action. Uh, I mean, Aizong fled into the palace chambers and hanged himself. But, uh, you know, uh, Wan Yan Chengling had a, a much more sort of robust response. Uh, he, uh, he, he rallied his troops. He took the fight to the enemy and he led Jin troops through the city and fought the Mongols hammer and tongs in the streets. But of course, the irresistible power of the Mongols was too much for him to overcome, and he was eventually eventually forced to retreat back to the city centre. And there, he received finally the tragic news that Aizong had indeed committed suicide, leaving the new emperor on his own to defend the city. But Wanyang, he rose to the occasion and continued the hopeless fight against the Mongols as they tore through to the centre of the city, and he was killed in the fighting as Kai Zhao finally fell. And with the fall of Kai Zhao and the death of the newly minted emperor, so too ended, of course, the Jin dynasty. Within 12 hours of the coronation of its last emperor, the empire was no more. After a brief and, it has to be said, very eventful reign, the last emperor of the Jin died with his empire at the hands of the conquering Mongols, going out in a blaze of glory that secured his position in history, not only as the last emperor of the Jin, but also, of course, as one of the shortest reigning rulers in history. And today, he is known to history as Emperor Mo, which literally translates quite appropriately to the last emperor. Here's an absolute cracker for you. Check this one out. Here is someone whose supposed reign as emperor was so short that we don't even know her name. How about that? So this story takes us all the way back to, uh, once again, takes us back to China, but this time to 6th century China, in fact, to the year 528 CE and the Northern Wei Dynasty. Uh, the Northern Wei Dynasty ruled over actually a similar area to the Jurchen Jin Dynasty years later, interestingly enough, but it also went much further west. 
uh, away from the coastline. Anyway, in 528, the Northern Wei Emperor, he was a bloke named Zhao Ming. Young fella, he was only 18, and he'd been emperor since he was five. Now, his mum, the Empress Dowager Hu, she had been in charge of things for most of his childhood. She'd been acting as regent. She had a break here and there, but most, for the most part, she had been in charge of, uh, of the Northern Wei dynasty. And this was very unusual as well for the Northern Wei. Check this out, because when an emperor's son was named pra- uh, Crown Prince, as Yaming was uh, when, uh, when he was, I think he was two years old in 512, it was tradition for the Crown Prince's mum to be put to death. I have no idea why. Maybe, actually, maybe when you uh, hear a little bit more about who and some of her antics, it actually might make more sense as to why why they uh, why they got rid of the uh, you know the mothers of the crown prince. I don't don't know why they were put to death, but uh, still absolutely wild here. Anyway, that was the tradition. But Jiaoming's mum, uh, Hu, she is spared this traditional death uh, that awaited her, and so when his dad, Emperor Zhuan uh, Wu, dies in fifteen uh, in sorry five fifteen. He takes the throne as a five-year-old child with his mum essentially in charge as the regent. Now, by the time he's 18, he's had enough of this. Emperor Zhao Ming, he's had enough of his mum's overbearing control, and he started to stand up to her more and more. Now, of course, Emperor Dow- uh, Empress Dowager Hu doesn't like this at all. She Presumably, you know, she'd become very accustomed to her position of power over the years. Uh, but now her son is talking back and wanting control of his empire, and she is having none of it. So Zhao Ming... He's going around trying to wrest control of his empire back from his mum. He's rounding up his mum's political allies, even executed one of her lovers just to show that he wasn't mucking about. But when then, at one point, right, he ordered a secret move of troops against her with his generals, a show of force. But who found out about this before it was actually able to be pulled off successfully and moved to preempt her son's attempt to remove her from power once and for all? Now, whose parenting style certainly was... um, Interesting, I think it's fair to say that, uh, in that order to bring her young son back in line, I mean, you know, my mum would like, I don't know, send me to my room or, you know, she wouldn't, I wouldn't get dessert if I didn't eat my veggies, pretty classic parenting techniques here. But uh, who, in order to get, as I say, get her son back in line and, uh, you know, get what she wanted out of him, she just straight up murdered him, just straight up killed him. She uh, she orchestrated the poisoning of her own son in order to hold on to power because she believed that she had another way, right, to continue her regency, even after her son had died. She decided that once she had uh, killed her son, that she would proclaim Zhao Ming's only child, right, her, grand, her grandchild, an infant who wasn't even two months old, declare this child as the new emperor, right? So the, the, the emperor's died, the child of the emperor becomes the, uh, becomes the new em- emperor, shouldn't be a worry. So, Old mate Zhao Ming ends up sharing the same fate as poor old Min Xin Saw, poisoned by a family member. And once he's carked it, of course, who makes her next move? She announces the death of her son. Bloody tears, everyone having a terrible time. But now this means that her grandson, this son of Xiaoming, the child I'm talking about, would now take the throne. And you can guess what her plan was from there, of course. We've got a, you know, a, a two-month-old child on the throne. Of course, you know, she'd be ruling through him and another regency, more years of power, easy peasy. Except... This grandson, right, that she proclaimed as emperor, wasn't her grandson at all. She was her granddaughter. Xiaoming's only child wasn't a boy, she was a girl, and therefore unable to inherit the throne from her father. So who comes out and says, yep, got this baby here, don't even worry about it, two months old, he's ready to take the throne, no worries, I'll take care of him, and also offered a a, a general pardon to all of Xiaoming's conspirators in order to sweeten the pot, but this wasn't enough, because the great deception that Hu had wrought, right, it only lasted for about four hours 
when it was discovered that the infant was in fact female and therefore ineligible to rule. So this tiny baby girl, whose name we don't even know, as I said, was proclaimed the emperor of the Northern Way and lasted in this position for four hours before being discovered to be ineligible. And I mean, it makes me wonder, how did she spend her reign? Did she perhaps have a nap or maybe got her nappy changed? I don't know. But this, uh, in any case, once the uh, once the truth was discovered, who, of course, she pivoted marvellously. You have to give her this. Uh, she she, uh, she rolled back the, the proclamation about her granddaughter and said, yep, okay, fair, fair enough, you got me. You know, she's a girl. All right, no worries. Instead, she proclaimed a young cousin of her da- of her dead son, the emperor, you know, in, in the, this, this granddaughter's place. This kid's name was Yuan Zhao, and uh, he was two years old. Again, very obviously chosen as his young age would make him easy, uh, you know, make it easy for, for, for who to control him. But this didn't work either. This latest intrigue was just as unsuccessful as the first one uh, because it's at this point that a Northern Way warlord, a bloke whose name was Urzu Rong, he refused to acknowledge the proclamation and uh, this essentially led to a civil war that splintered the Northern Way dynasty. Urzu Rong uh, took the fight to the Empress Dowager and you know the, the, the latest kid that she tried to install as the Emperor, beat her, captured her, and once he had her in his power, Chucked her in a river and drowned her. And so that was the end of uh, of Hu. And uh, he also proclaimed his own emperor, whose name was uh, Xiao Zhuang, uh, who then turned around and murdered him in 530. So not much, you know, not much in the way of thanks there for Urzu Rong, who, you know, plonked this bloke on the throne and was later killed for it. So the whole thing was a great big bloody mess. But in the middle of it, there was a little infant girl who was proclaimed emperor, not empress, emperor. For all of four hours, and all we know about this girl, we don't know her name, we don't know what she ended up doing with her life after this, we know nothing. All we know is that for a very, very brief period at the beginning of her life, right, she had, she was declared for four hours as the emperor of the Northern Way. Now, of course, historians don't consider her to be a, a legitimate Chinese monarch to these days. The uh, To this day, sorry, the only female monarch in Chinese history is Wu, Wu Zichan. You can hear, hear about her in uh, episode 28, of course. But thanks to this weird situation in the opening weeks of this girl's life, she has one of the shortest proclaimed reigns in history, which is not a bad achievement for someone who wasn't even two months old. Finally now to tell the story of the ruler with the shortest reign in history, we move to France and to the year 1830 after the Bourbon Restoration in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. Now after Napoleon, the French monarchy was restored with Louis XVIII in 1814 uh, and the monarchy then passed to his brother Charles X when Louis died in 1824. Now, Charles X was not a popular monarch, to put it mildly. His reign directly led to the July Revolution in 1830. He pissed a lot of people off by reinstating the death penalty for sacrilege, for example, or for reparation payments to former feudal lords before the French Revolution. And on top of that, he also limited voting rights, curtailed the freedom of the press. He was just a bit of a nasty piece of work. It has to be said, he wasn't a very forward-thinking, you know, wasn't a very forward-thinking king at all. Anyway. In the closing days of July 1830, all of this discontent, uh, this discontent it culminated 
in widespread riots that were threatening essentially another full-scale revolution like the one that had happened you know not to not not in the in the memory of many of the people who were alive then for three days, riots spread and intensified throughout cities like Paris, with barricades being built, buildings being looted, huge crowds of you know, heavily armed people ready for another armed uprising. Many politicians sought to replace Charles with his cousin, Louis-Philippe d'Orléans, right? But Charles was having none of this. He wasn't about to be supplanted by a minor, you know, a minor noble somewhere else. Um, however, after midnight on the 31st of July, after, uh, after three days of these riots in the streets of Paris, Charles X, he was warned that his residence there in Paris might come under attack from revolutionaries, and so he decided to get the hell out of Dodge and move to Versailles, the big palace there, of course, very famous. However, after arriving in Versailles, he was warned by the city's governor that even the guards at the palace there was sympathetic to the revolutionaries and that he wouldn't be safe if he went to the palace. So more or less cornered at this point, Charles and his retinue, they ended up at the, at the, at the Chateau de Rambouillet, right, which is southwest of Paris, southwest of Versailles. And it was there in the chateau that the shortest ever reign in history took place. Charles X, recognising that he essentially had no way out of this situation, now that you know, so much of the country was in firm opposition to him and his regime, he knew he had to do something. Uh, Louis-Philippe had a fair bit of support as a replacement king, particularly from notable politicians, but Charles didn't want Louis-Philippe to succeed him as, as, as king, right? So he therefore abdicated in favour of not his son, Louis-Antoine, uh, Louis but his nine-year-old grandson, Henri, right? Hoping that Henri would be a more palatable alternative to Louis-Philippe. However... This plan, of course, also required the compliance of Louis Antoine, who, up until this point, had been next in line to the throne and would become king as soon as his father abdicated. And I will tell you this, Louis Antoine was not a fan of the plan at all. Charles signed the instrument of abdication that sought to install his, his grandson Henri as the king and then got this bit of paper plonked it in front of Louis Antoine and said, all right, my son, sign this, and your son is going to become the King of France. And according to the people that were there when this happened, they're in the next room, right, when this happened, Charles and Louis Antoine, the king and the uh, and the Dauphin, right, the, 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 the crown prince, then had a great big screaming match. They had a huge argument. They're shouting and yelling at each other. It's audible in the, in the other room. It's coming through the wall because Louis Antoine refused to sign this instrument of abdication. Now, technically, and there's that word, technically, you could say, right, that Louis Antoine was already king. He was now Louis the 19th because as soon as his dad signed the document saying that he was abdicating, he young Louis automatically became the king, right? So, the first thing, if you want to look at it this way, the first thing that King Louis the 19th of France did in his rule was just kick off at his old man. The first and and only thing, as it would turn down, as it would turn out, because after about 15 or 20 minutes of these two blokes yelling at each other, they emerged with the document duly signed. And that is the story of the reign of King Louis the 19th, who spent his 20-minute reign over France arguing with his father. Of course, he was never proclaimed or anything like that. So his reign is hardly even, you know, the interesting technicality that it's made out to be. But still, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, as for the abdication, Louis-Philippe, 
he just ignored the bits that he didn't like. This uh, this bloke, he was he paid no attention to the stuff about Henri taking the throne. Once Charles had signed the abdication, once Louis Antoine Louis the Nineteenth had, had also signed it as well. Uh, he was just elected king straight away by the popularly, popularly elected Chamber of Deputies, and he ruled France for 18 years after this, a period that was known as the July Monarchy, which of course began, as you would expect, in August. As for our 20-minute king, he fled first to Scotland and then moved to Prague before finally settling in Goetz, which is uh, today in Slovenia, and that was where he died many years later in 1844. But until his death, I'll tell you this, loyal French legitimists considered him to be Louis XIX, the king in exile. But this didn't matter. Ultimately, Louis-Philippe I ended up with the French crown for almost as many years as Louis XIX did minutes. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are history's shortest reigns. And as I say, this is not a definitive list. There are other people who could have been on this list. Some of the people on this list may not even deserve to be on it, seeing as that they were never proclaimed or anything else. I guess here is a loose collection of some stories about some rulers who weren't really rulers who ruled but didn't really rule for a very short amount of time. That's just not a very snappy episode title, is it? Anyway, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Half House History. It's been great to have your company, of course. All the normal housekeeping, boring stuff coming your way right now. Half House History is the website. You can find links to subscribe there on iTunes or on Spotify, or whatever you know, whatever podcast pipe you'd like to pick. Um, and you can also get in touch with the show there via the contact form that's on the website. And a special thanks to all the members of the Patreon who uh, who support me every week financially. If you'd like to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory. A, uh, a, a deep and lasting debt of gratitude I owe to each and every one of them. Thanks so much for all the support, everyone. And uh, I'll be back next week with more Half House History, of course. And I'm looking forward to your company when I do. But until then, leaving you with a question. We've talked about rulers. We've talked about heirs and 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 kingdoms and and monarchies and this is a very appropriate question that comes to us from redditor returned loom about uh, you know a certain transfer of, of, of historical power that was never made abundantly clear returned loom asks which king was prince's dad and who is the heir now